Hey everybody, this is Beyond the Dog with Lynn Bokey and hey, wait a second, that's me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. How's it going? How's everybody doing? How's your summer so far? Well, I hope you're doing well and, and having fun. Uh, it's really hot for me, but it's okay. So I'm going to get kind of personal in this episode. Uh, so I, I think I should get you the email details, the deets, so we can get right into it, okay? If you have any questions, comments, ideas, send your email to askbeyondthedog at gmail.com. Again, that's askbeyondthedog at gmail.com. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you. So listen, when I committed to starting this podcast, my goal was to create something that anyone could listen to, whether they had a dog or not. So beyond the dog, right? But there is no getting around the fact that I work with dogs and teach dog trainers. So here in the beginning, while the podcast grows, I, I understand that my main audience is people in and around the dog industry, and I'm perfectly happy with that at this point. With that said, the topic in this episode is geared toward people who work with dogs, but if you aren't in the dog industry, I think you will still find this episode interesting, and, and I hope you stick around. All right? Well, let's get to it. If you happen to be a dog trainer who uses pressure or release... Perhaps you're a dog trainer and you love pressure and release. Maybe you're a dog trainer and have absolutely no idea what pressure and release is. And especially if you're a dog trainer and hate pressure and release, stay tuned and let me change everything you think you know about pressure and release and the language of pressure. My goal in this episode is to bring some clarity and a deeper understanding to the origins of pressure and release and its language as I know them to be. We'll talk about my struggles while developing it and why what is out there today is misunderstood, incomplete, and underutilized. Then finally, introduce you to the pressure matrix that I have created. And don't worry, if things run long, I'll just split the episode and release it in parts, alright? So the doors to my School of Dog Psychology's multi-week behavior program for trainers have been closed for several years now. And it's been a long and, and painful journey for me, but I'm finally confident enough and ready to reopen those doors and offer a 21-day program to help people develop a skill rather than just, you know, motivate them over a few days and send them home only to have the information kind of fade away because it didn't have time to set, develop, sink in, you know? Now, there's nothing wrong with behavior workshops, seminars, or short shadow programs. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. I mean... I offer them as well, but as an only source of education out there for trainers, I believe it's a disservice to future dogs. I believe that my school or, or any school with a longer educational option on behavior for trainers has been gone uh, for too long, way overdue and more important now than ever before. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me get a drink of water. <clears throat> I am going to give you this backstory, but not because you really need it, but because I really need to share it. It was, it is an important part of my life, and I need some closure to it so that I can fully move forward in order to feel completely comfortable in sharing my, my knowledge with current and future dog handlers. So pressure and release. It is the heart and the core to what I call the pressure matrix. Hey, listen, I'm not delusional here. I don't think that everyone is going to drop what they're currently doing and, and adopt my system or 
that I'm going to somehow change the dog world with it. But, you know, I, I believe it, it could have had a deeper impact than it currently has on the dog world if it hadn't been leaked out before I completed it. I know that I'm late to the party. I get it. And I know you all have your favorite mentors, teachers, you know, people you look up to and you're loyal to them. And that's great. And there's some really good ones out there, you know, no doubt about it. I'm not here to call them out or bash them in any way. This is just me talking about my own struggles with self-improvement and why it personally took me so many years to get to this exact moment in time with you. You know, my feeling as an educator and a mentor is the best way for me to teach what I have to offer is through an understanding of my own weaknesses, my own mistakes. You know, your best teacher is your last mistake. And I continue to improve and grow as I teach. I believe that the view through this understanding is a valuable way for my clients and students to learn and grow from. I, I do this primarily because I feel if the student or client could hear that I have the same struggles or am struggling with the same issues they have, even if they're in a completely different context than theirs, and that I can still come out on top, that maybe, maybe they will see and feel it is possible for them to overcome their issues in whatever context and be capable of developing their skills and growing emotionally to whatever level of success they need or want to have, you know? No matter how difficult things got for them or how hard they had to work, I always showed them that it was possible. And take this podcast, for example. I mean, every episode I mention my struggle with understanding technology. It's hard for me. Do you understand how embarrassing it is for me at 50 to be unable to do the things that are basic for an eight-year-old? Ugh. Uh, many times I've wanted to quit, seriously. But here I am pressing forward. And as I continue to practice, I get better and better and better at it. And after I master this, I'll begin again with video. And I know it'll be just as difficult a process for me as audio has been, but when I get there, I believe everyone will benefit from what I create with it. So whatever problem you are experiencing with your dog, your business, your life, you can overcome it in the best possible way that you can as long as you don't give up. You know, a tactic or a treat is not a failure. Don't ever quit. It doesn't matter how much time things take. It only matters that we take the time. Now, the last thing I, I want you to know before we dive in is that no matter what, no matter what you're going to hear me say, I am absolutely not looking for sympathy. I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me. There's no comparison either. Nobody has the same experiences in life, and I'm not looking for any advice either. I do understand. I mean, I know that how things played out for me Ultimately, the results are my responsibility, and I own them. I've already surrendered to that part, but I fully believe that the final piece to my acceptance, in order to have a healthy outcome so that I can move forward in peace, is to share this with everyone. Now, this will be the release, so to speak, for the pressure that's reached its peak inside me. See what I did there? <laughs> Look, all I'm saying is, that it's time I put this to rest, you know? Are you ready? Because here we go. So it was back in, I don't know, 2003, 2004. Now, I'm not great with dates, so please bear with me, but it was around that time that I began messing around with the concept of pressure and release. And I had already been working with my mentor, Caesar Milan, for a little while at this point, and 
And this was before he had his show, The Dog Whisperer. Dog psychology was not known at all back then. And my clients at the time didn't understand or didn't care to understand things like simple things like dominance and submission, territorial behavior, you know. Dog psychology in general was a foreign language and seemed to confuse them. So I started using examples through pressure rather than all the terms that I had learned. Back then, even words like energy would get a lot of eye rolling and heavy size. The power now in that, that movie, The Secret, they weren't a thing yet, and dog psychology certain, certainly didn't sound as romantic coming out of me as it would come out of Caesar, you know. But when I used analogies or paralleled what my, my clients do for work or in life and took a more layman's terms approach with pressure and release, people started to get it, you know. And that felt good to be able to help so many people with their dogs. Now, I've used analogies all my life and probably way too much. I do this because I, I think uh, of how I, I view my education levels or intelligence. You know, I can read, but I graduated high school with like uh, the ability of a fifth grader, you know. Uh, I did graduate, but how, I, I don't know. I have gotten better though. I just read super slow and when I do, I get terrible headaches. So I rarely read. I understand the importance of reading. I mean, I even have a lot of books, but that discipline to read just was never instilled in me, so my desire to read them isn't there. I also have some learning disabilities along with extreme ADHD, so my comprehension levels are low. I'm not stupid, I, I just process things differently, so I always use analogies and parallels so that things make sense to me. And I think that's probably how I've compensated over the years for my educational insecurities. I learned from seeing and doing, you know. So pressure and release was my way to understand and my way to help other people understand dog psychology. Of course, the dog whisperer became a huge hit. So the language in dog psychology that Caesar developed became mainstream. And I think it was 2004, 2005 that I approached Caesar with the idea of a school to teach trainers dog psychology. And he loved the idea, but... At that time, he was consumed with his responsibilities that came along with the, the show Dog Whisperer, and, and he couldn't get involved. So I asked for permission to open a school for trainers and teach dog psychology. And one of these days, I will talk about my journey with Caesar, but for now, I will just mention him briefly because he is part of the history that I'm talking about today. I was a guest on uh, uh, the Vermont Dog Trainer Show with Ian Grant, and I talk a little bit about my journey with Caesar there if you, if you want to check that out. Uh, Ian has a great podcast where he interviews a trainer from each state. I was lucky number 13. Now you should check it out, the Vermont Dog Trainer Show. Anyway, Caesar did finally give me permission to teach other trainers his methods, and I was the only person. Back then, that really meant something, and it still does for me today. I mean, I'm forever grateful to Caesar for that. And that was way back in the day, you know, and nowadays nobody asks for permission to utilize other people's intellectual property. They'll just go to a seminar or workshop and, and then feel it's all right and not at all disrespectful to the teacher to go ahead and post it all on their social media as if it were their own. And even if they say where they got the information from, they're still posting all the things they learn. I just don't understand that at all. I mean, how disrespectful to the person who, who took the time to develop a program to offer others a place to learn from. Sometimes it's worse though. Some of these people think that now they have the ability or, or are qualified to teach and then hold workshops and seminars, shadow programs, 
or have a YouTube channel with information based off of someone else who can and, and is qualified to teach. You know, hearing some information and watching some techniques for a couple of days is not the same as developing a skill through experience over time, let alone to be able to teach their use to other people who want to be trainers. But everybody seems to have shadow programs these days, qualified or not. And they all appear to, to be charging the same amount as the people who are qualified. And I just think that's both sad and dangerous, you know. So it was somewhere in 2005 I opened what was, you know, the first shadow program. That's what I called it, the shadow program, and for specific reasons. But in 2006, I officially changed it to School of Dog Psychology, the first of its kind, you know, a hands-on school based on behavior rather than obedience and positive reinforcement. My students had the opportunity to work with in and, and around behaviors varying from extreme fear to extreme aggression. And to this day, no one else is offering that kind of education or, or would even consider putting students that close to danger. And this is when I, I first introduced pressure and release to the dog industry. Now, people will say that it, that it came from the horse world, and that's, that's fine, great, but I don't work with horses and I don't know anything about horses. I think I've only been on one maybe three times in my life. And pressure and release, they're not uncommon words, but my system of pressure and release and the language of pressure, which was just a nickname I gave back then because, you know, they were actions I was using. Ultimately, it has become what I call a pressure matrix. And I'm sure it isn't anything being used in the horse world, but hey, if it exists, I would love to see it, you know, now, see what they're doing with it. I mean, if anybody wants to show me, I'd be happy to look at it. You know, back in the day, in the beginning, my school, my way of teaching was controversial and, and it was meant to be an experiential learning process. Its main purpose was not just to teach students uh, and, and have them learn dog psychology, but to do it while going through what the average dog has to go through to learn, to feel the confusion that dogs feel, that frustration, while trying to figure out what the human wants, you know, while at the same time trying to communicate what they need, all the while expected to do it right this second. You know, it isn't all face licks and paw shakes, belly rubs and bully sticks for them, you know. George Bernard Shaw once said, the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it's taken place. Now, I don't think people realize how difficult it is for a dog to psychologically navigate through the a human world. And I made it abundantly clear, and, and everyone was informed that I wanted my students to feel that frustration, anxiety, fear, and even excitement, especially when it was an inappropriate time to be excited, so that I could correct them for it in order to further confuse them, continually displacing their expectations. That was, that was my goal. I mean, can you imagine how difficult it is for a dog to be rewarded for its excitement one minute and then the next minute be punished for it because it, it doesn't understand the rules, boundaries, and limits on, on how, when, and, and what level is appropriate. How is that fair for the dog? It's not their fault. You know what I'm saying. You, you've seen people do this, right? So the day students arrive, the very first minute I had their attention, they were given one hard and fast instruction. You are no longer allowed to speak. And they would ask, for how long? Right out of the gate, man. Did you not hear the instruction? You are no longer allowed to speak. But how do we, I mean, how will we? You're speaking again. 
Is English your first language? Well, yes, but then why are you still talking? Figure it out. I'd tell them about how dogs are born with their nose open first. Later, their eyes would open up, and finally down the line, their ears. We're born, humans are born, with our ears open first, then our eyes, and finally our nose opens up. But who the heck knows what to do with that when we're babies? Later, our vocal cords stretch or, or do their thing, and finally, we can begin to repeat words. But as a baby, we can't speak. We can't figure out how to communicate our, our needs, and it, and it creates a lot of anxiety and frustration in us. Some people teach their baby sign language and, and they can communicate their needs and wants. And, and I know this softens the confusion and brings a little peace to their, their early start in the world. I even have a friend whose baby had over a hundred word vocabulary before she could even speak. And I wanted my students to begin again and grow like a baby, learn. So I'd tell them, your challenge is to figure out how to communicate without words. And I don't sign language, so just figure it out. The pattern for them was so predictable and I would get these pieces of paper with scribbled questions that I wouldn't even look at. Can somebody please tell me, because I want to know, since when can babies write? <laughs> I mean, I was acting this way by design. It was a simple instruction, figure out how to communicate without words. Dogs will never be able to speak or write, yet we expect them to follow instructions to a T. I'd say things like, how can I trust that you will ever be able to provide a clear instructions for a dog that can't speak English, can't understand English, if you can't even follow a simple instruction that I've given you in English. Uh, this was an important part of the school, and, and it isn't easy to do, not communicating through our ears. It goes way against our nature. So this would go on and on until finally the students would find that, you know, peace through silence. And after 10 days, I would, yeah, yeah, that's right. I said 10 days. After 10 days, I would let them speak. My dogs don't get that freedom after 10 days. But not speaking would funnel the student's attention to a pin's head on anything and everything I wanted them to learn. Now, that's a nutshell of what we did for 12 to 15 hours per day. And, 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 and they still had homework to do each night, seven days a week for 30 days. I was dead set on making sure they learned how important clear communication is from confusion out. And I only had 30 days to do it in, so I wasn't gentle with my students. And I wasn't focused on whether they liked me in the end either, only on how they would handle dogs when they got back to their city, state, or country. And, and that was back in the day, you know. I have since toned it down, way down. But my, sco my school produced many great trainers from around the world, so... Some of my students have actually become pretty, pretty well known in the industry. You, and you, and you, and you might even have been taught by one or more of them. I don't know. Maybe. But I drilled responsibility and confidence into them, and, and I put them through hell to get there. And no matter what, uh, whether they claim me as their mentor or not, no matter what, nothing can ever take away how very proud I am of each and every one of them. And I look forward to continue creating great uh, dog handlers that, that help people and dogs all around the world. But pressure and release was only in its infancy stages back then, you see. I, uh, it wasn't prepared for the entire world to have it yet. I mean, I didn't even teach my students every detail I was working on because I was still working on it, developing it. 
you know, I'd been working on my own issues with trust back then too. And I, I wanted to trust them. I mean, this was all about dogs, right? I love dogs so much. They love dogs so much. So I shared what I had with, with, them, with my students because I felt it had enough legs that they could help their clients succeed with their dogs using it, which was my goal in the first place, but it wasn't ready for mass consumption yet. And hey, it's not a secret I'm a loner, you know. I was never political in the industry. I, I only attended one IACP conference, so I was never in the loop. Uh, I, I'm not technical, as you may have heard from uh, the other episodes of my podcast. Technology is just not a friend of mine and is just as difficult for me as reading is. So I, I never went online or, or got involved in the International Association of Canine Professionals. I didn't join any chat rooms. I never did any networking, but my students, my early students did and, and were very involved with the IACP. They networked with trainers from all over the world at these conferences, and some of them have even been keynote speakers at these events. So for a long time, I didn't have any clue that pressure and release was out there and being utilized by other trainers that I didn't teach or even know. I just kept it in my back pocket uh, while I continued to develop it. So hip, hop, skip, and jump a few years down the line, and it got out there, you know. Pressure and release is out there. Things just happen, I guess, you know? Ultimately, it isn't such a bad thing that it's out there. I, I mean, I'm glad so many people are familiar with it. It makes me feel good that it has had any effect in the industry, but it's incomplete, you see, and it's just not what it should be or, or could be, and, and that is, it, it disappoints me. And that's one of the reasons why we're talking about it today. But I think it was... 2010 when I finally became aware that it was out there and that I'd been plagiarized and and that it was being spread so thin because of the people I didn't even know who were changing all the titles and uses of the forms of pressure and I, I saw them taking credit for it and making money off of it by teaching other trainers how to use it building their name you know spreading it thinner and thinner well I took that very personally I mean really personally and um yeah, I'm a fight animal, you know. When I get afraid or I feel threatened or taken advantage of, I can get pretty intense and defensive, and I guess that can look a little aggressive to some people. I immediately stopped teaching pressure and release beyond what it was already out there, and to this day, I haven't seen it evolve past what I taught my students 13, 14 years ago. I guess that might be a good thing for me right now, but at that point in my life, in my career... I'd been working very diligently on my personal issues for so long, you know, on, on how important my energy is and how my thoughts and feelings become an energy that affects everything and everyone around me. So it became very difficult for me to say or do anything about being plagiarized because each time it came up or, or I brought it up, I would get so defensive about it and then I would get angry because even though I still had so much work to do on myself, I'd been making a lot of progress, but I could just kind of, you know, feel it slipping away, you know, so it was difficult. I would get so emotional that, that things in my head would get twisted and knotted and shit wouldn't come out of my mouth right, and I would just end up embarrassing myself in front of people I had respect for or had any authority to help me with this. I soon came to realize that 
it had required every bit of my focus to control my reactions in everyday life and keep my emotions in line back then. Uh, my success at that point was completely dependent on little to no emotional distraction. In hindsight, I was, I was only managing or suppressing my issues, and, and that's never a good thing to do. You know, I may have been hard uh, on my students and clients, hold them to a higher standard, but nowhere near as hard as I am on myself. So I would step back for a while, you know, regroup, assess my mistakes, and keep working on myself. After a while, I would try again and again, but every time I would go to address it, I, I would get so stressed out and angry. I, I couldn't find a way to stop the emotions from hemorrhaging. You know, uh, unfortunately, right in the middle of all this, I had some health issues, a nerve issue, and a, and a diagnosis came in that meant I will eventually and gradually and and in a painful way, lose the use of my right arm. And you know, I had made a name for myself with the successful work I was doing with the worst of the worst behaviors. I mean, back then, people would drive their dogs from as far away as New Jersey just for a two-hour consultation and for me to rehabilitate their dogs. And then I, I wasn't able to physically do things anymore. The, the things that I could do with these types of dogs that I'd always been able to do it was devastating for me, and it, it affected me so personally, so deeply that uh, my identity, uh, <clears throat> so it cracked somewhere in 2013, and, and I fell into a, a, a deep depression that has lasted several years, and I mean, I'm still not fully out of it yet. Depression sucks, man. It's like walking through a spider web, you know, you, you wipe it off your face and, and you see it stuck to your hand. So you wipe it off your hand only to find it stuck to your other hand. It just never seemed to go away and I, I would never wish it upon anybody. I mean, every time I thought I was climbing out of that hole, I was faced with the pressure and release thing again and I would just fall back in. And then apathy, Ugh. it was... It was overwhelming. I, I, I couldn't find a, a reason for me to care about anything anymore. It didn't matter to me if I ate or not. It didn't matter to me if I brushed my teeth or not. It didn't matter if I took a shower or not. I slept all the time and it just didn't matter if I ever woke up. I mean, since I was a kid, my whole life, I had survived and struggled on my own. And, and now, you know, I was no longer going to be able to, to physically do the one thing in my life that I was fucking amazing at doing and there was no operation and nothing that could be done about it and then add to that having the one thing that I created, something that I made on my own all by myself that was so unique and the single biggest thing that differentiated myself from all others, even from my mentor and it was taken from me and watered down to, to almost no meaning at all. And that there's absolutely nothing I could do about that either. Ugh. It destroyed me, man. Utterly and completely destroyed me. I was just so fatigued and hopeless, burned out. I couldn't see why it was affecting me so much, so I just stopped looking. And I had pulled on the plug on and watched it as I let my business, a hugely successful business, 20 years word of mouth. I just let it drain away until there was nothing left of it. Nothing left of my school, nothing left of my name, and, and nothing left of everything I had saved until finally I couldn't afford to live in Los Angeles anymore and I had to move. Fuck. I miss California so much. But I'm a survivor though, you know. I knew that I couldn't stay down any longer. 2016 comes around and I attempt to climb out and start it all over, but 
I found that everything was new and different. I was off the grid for so long that the landscape had changed. Technology and social media had taken over and I felt, you know, <clears throat> very lost again. Growing up, you see, I, I avoided technology. It confused me. It still does. I mean, I've never even sent a fax in my life. Some of you probably don't even know what a fax machine is. I don't even know if they still make fax machines, but that should tell you how long I've resisted technology. And no matter what my skill level is with dogs, no matter what I have to offer the dog industry, I could no longer avoid using technology. So starting a new career is difficult enough, you know, but restarting in an old career, that felt like impossible. Because I, I would feel and think in my head, why do I got to do this social media shit, you know? I shouldn't have to do this, right? I'd always been well known. My career had been built on word of mouth. Well, that didn't mean anything anymore, though, you know? And, and let me tell you, that is a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, I have to do it again. All that work, again. Now it's me. <laughs> I'm the one that has to figure out a way to communicate. <laughs> That's actually kind of funny, right? So in order to start over with my career, I had to start over and at least learn a little bit of technology just so I could use social media in order to let everyone know I, I, I'm here, that I even exist. And it didn't seem to matter to people who I was or, or what I could do because I'm late to that party and now... I have to catch up to anyone with a cell phone saying who they are and, and what they can do, whether it's the truth or not. Because who's checking online to see what they're saying are facts? Now, that's another thing I had to learn to let go of, man. Because you can say and do anything you want online. I guess that's why it's a free country, right? And it would, it would kill me, you know? And I, I'd see all that and I, I would just fall again, right into a pit of anger and disgust, you know? I mean, I, you know, I literally just watched a video yesterday with a trainer using a wiffle ball bat on a dog. I mean, what the fuck? The balls on these people to even record that and then post it? Ugh, whatever, man. I'm getting better with social media and technology, though. And one day, one day I will make it back to the top. That's a fact. I'm climbing out right now. I'm just not there yet, though. But back then when I was starting over and... On this new journey, pressure and release would find its way to test me again and again and again. Hey, listen, while, while I'm thinking about it, if, if you're experiencing depression and, and you haven't pushed everyone away yet, do yourself a favor and, and ask someone you trust to make you get up and get out. You won't want to, but you must. You have to. Give that person permission to not take no for an answer no matter what you got to get up you got to get out you got to get around people because if you don't in those rare moments that you feel like being around someone you'll just tell yourself that oh it's been way too long and that they won't care or worse that they will care and only want to talk to you about why and want to know what's wrong or or how they can help and that's the last thing you want to talk about at that time, so you don't pick up the phone, and, and at some point you wake up, it's five fucking years later, and then you feel so guilty about it that that is why it keeps you away from people from the outside world, too. If you don't have anybody, you got to get out there, man. you got to force yourself, and if you have a friend or, or a family member experiencing depression who has pushed you away or, or you just can't deal with being around them anymore... 
I urge you to give them one more shot, man. Just one more. Give, give them one more shot. Reach out to them one more time because depression, isolation, apathy, it can create a fertile ground for resentment to grow in. And resentment is toxic, man. I would see the facial expressions on people who I talked to about the plagiarism and, and how they reacted to my defensiveness. Oh, man. My very presence was becoming a repellent to them. And I can't describe to you how difficult that was for me to watch and feel. I mean, I could see it happening, but from like the outside of me, you know, and I just couldn't hear myself saying, dude, shut the fuck up. Just stop. And even though I could see the brick wall that I was speeding toward, I just was unable to yield or stop myself. But after each crash, though, I would I would just uh, step back again. Okay, uh, I guess I'm not ready, you know. I'm not ready to share this with anybody yet. And I would go back to my lab and rework myself. I couldn't find a way to get out of it, though. I mean, my feelings were hurt. I was wounded, you know. People in authority positions didn't seem to believe me or or care. And I was running out of people who I had respect for or who had respect for me that would even want to be around me. Yeah, I owed it to myself to stop allowing this to destroy all the work I had put in with myself. I mean... It was already out there, right? Pressure and release? There's nothing I could do about that, right? It finally became more important to me that I surrendered to it and and learn acceptance from it before I could ever feel comfortable enough to bring it out to everyone. Otherwise, I'm just some angry old dude with a face pinched from resentment. You know, complaining about my intellectual property being stolen. And who can or even wants to learn what I have to offer coming from that state of mind, you know? So why was this eating me up from inside out and making people not want to be around me? Why was there so much grief, pain, and suffering for so long that I I would react so defensively and intensely that it pushed everyone away? I mean, what's the big fucking deal, right? I mean, does any of this shit matter to you? I don't know. Should it matter to you? Maybe. Maybe if I show you how valuable it is to me, it might make it valuable enough to you to want to learn pressure matrix. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe you're going through something with yourself and and can't find a way out. Maybe my story will help you see that it is possible and maybe, I don't know, but why did it matter to me so much? Why? Well, if you picture a dog on the street, hungry and skinny and it it won't come to you when you call for it and it runs away from you, maybe even into the street to get away from you while you try to rescue it. It doesn't, doesn't it know I'm trying to help it? No, it has no idea. Picture another dog, you know, shaking and afraid, maybe defensive and snappy, reactive, avoidant. Maybe it hides under a table or or shuts down. Maybe it even screams when you reach out and try to share affection with it. Oh, poor thing. What's wrong? What happened to it? Well, what happened to it is it's suffering the side effects uh, of an association that, that has control of and dictating their reactions to an unrealistic threat. You know, a human isn't so different when it comes to associations. Here, let me explain. An association is created when something happens to us and emotions are involved. We experience these situations either in a positive or a negative way. And this positive or negative experience comes with an intensity that ranges from zero to 100%. The higher the intensity is, the deeper the experience. And the deeper that experience is, determines the intensity and depth of the association that is created from that experience. 
The association that is created becomes even deeper the more times the experience is repeated, forever imprinted, positively or negatively. This will dictate the intensity and frequency of future reactions in similar circumstances. Can you see that? Well, here's an example. Whenever I smell freshly mowed grass, I am immediately transported to a skinny 16-year-old version of myself with long fucking hair blasting Motley Crue through my headphones after school while mowing lawns. Whenever I smell mowed grass, I can even hear the music as if I'm wearing those headphones. Every time I smell mowed grass, every single time. And we all have things that happen in our lives. A situation that impacts us so deeply that it creates an association for us so that when something, anything that happens later on in life that resembles or reminds us of that original situation, our reaction will be as if it is that original situation. Associations are very difficult to change in humans because, you know, we can think and we can rationalize and we can sit in the past or, or live in some made-up future to avoid our present, you see. I know that I think way too much, but associations are not impossible to change. They're, they're just time-consuming and require awareness and discipline and follow-through because they need to grow enough to outweigh the old one. Make sense? I'm not going to go into detail of my life story, but I will tell you about one side effect from it. A deep association that I held on to for many years, but listen real quick. This is just to give you perspective, and please, no sympathy. That's not my intention. In fact, if I didn't grow up the way I did, I don't think I would have the resilience I, uh, I have and, or have the abilities to understand dogs and people as deeply as I do today. I mean, when I look at a dog, I don't just see how they feel. I can feel how they feel. I can feel it, you know, deep in the marrow of my bones. I can feel what they're experiencing. And the intensity level that I experience it at tells me for how long they've experienced it. And I don't know how or why I can. I, I just can. You know, it used to bother me when people would say I have a gift with dogs. And believe me, it wasn't something I was born with and it certainly wasn't something given to me. It was done to me. But I wouldn't have these abilities, though, if I grew up any other way than I did. So, an association side effect example for me. I was in my uh, late 20s before I stopped <clears throat> hiding food, you know. I, I mean, there was no reason at that point, no need for me to hide food. But even when I, I didn't have roommates, you know, I, I was still hiding food. And it isn't easy as saying uh, it took me that long to realize I didn't need to hide food anymore. It means I lived that long believing, you know, through association that I needed to hide food. You can hear the difference, right? That's what associations do. So if you look at, if you see a dog living through an association, just understand that they are only stuck and, and need help, not punishment or an overcorrection for their behavior. This will only cause suppression and, and doesn't change the association that triggers the behavior in the first place. So they'll just behave that way again and again. They can only behave the way we allow them to behave, you know. It's never the dog's fault. As far as uh, the current topic, you know, goes, plagiarism and my associations with it, you know, it's taken me years now. I mean, years before I could finally find a way out of that maze and talk calmly to you about this issue. And I don't need to describe my experiences of how or, or what was taken from me. 
as a child and, and, and you don't need to or would even want to hear them or the frequency in which they occurred. And you don't need to because I've been describing the side effects that I've experienced as an adult from them and for how many years they've controlled me. I mean, I'm 50. Those associations tore a groove in my mind that my emotions would get stuck in and lead me to my reactions whenever I would feel taken advantage of or feel that something is taken from me as an adult. And I believed that intellectual property was taken from me. I believed that deep in my heart that it was stolen from me. I don't need to tell you about or, or want to go into the finer details of who or, or even why they did it, especially the why, but it felt that way to me, you see? So it was that way to me. You understand? And no excuses here, only reasons. My reactions were overreactions, and, and I know that as I continue building new associations that there will be some setbacks along the way, and, and I'm prepared for them, but I'm 50 years old, and I'm finally able, capable of removing the need to feel or react from those deep associations. And that's all that really matters to me. And if hearing my story, you realize that you are being controlled in some way by an association, maybe you can see that there's a way out for you too. Here's the kicker for me though. What if, after all this time, nobody gives a shit about my system with pressure and release? What if, all of this time and energy and suffering over these years to bring it to you was for nothing. What if people think the pressure matrix is ridiculous? Oh my God, what if it is ridiculous? I mean, what if people say it's, it's dated, it's 10 years too late, or, or still believe someone else created it? I would say, you know, it doesn't matter because I'm removing that toxic, poisonous resentment out of me and, and it will no longer control me. I'm winning that battle within myself, so it doesn't really matter what anybody thinks. I hope that people find this information useful, I mean, at least interesting, because it took me a long time to develop this system, and even longer to be able to bring it to you. I lost time and money, a facility, important relationships, all while I was testing it in the deepest waters of behavior, and I bled doing it, so that makes me the authority on pressure and release. That's not arrogance. That is resume shit right there, man. And I don't need to go any further in explaining that I created it. And it doesn't matter if no one believes me, you see. Or if no one finds this important. It's important to me. It's important to me that I can finally share pressure and release with you the way I created it. As the pressure matrix. From a healthy state of mind, no matter how late I am with it, you see. Ultimately... Pressure and release, or, or the language of pressure and release, uh, uh, is so common. Uh, it doesn't really matter who came up with it. I've let that go. I, I really have. I just wanted to and, and needed to give a little backstory to its origins of, of what it is so that maybe you can see the possibilities of where it can go. You know? The funny thing is, through all that depression and all that apathy, the anger, resentment, all that lost, I was so busy and blinded by defending it that, it was, that I had created pressure and release and the language, the fucking pressure matrix, that I forgot to use it with myself, man. And right then, boom, a light came on. And I could finally see the way out. And, and that feels so good for me to finally be able to say, that that dark cloud is gone, you know? If, if over these last five, six, seven, eight years, 
If you happen to be someone in my life at that time and, and found it unbearable to be around me or you're someone I pushed out of my life or, or someone that I neglected until you were completely out of my life, especially those people, you didn't deserve that. And, and I apologize for my behavior. And I get it. If you, if you don't want to be around me, I get it. Uh, and if you don't want to forgive me or, or, or can't forget how I behaved, I get that too. There's no excuse for it, but I, I hope you can find a way to understand it, you know. So what is this pressure matrix anyway? Well, as you heard me discuss, it began with the language and use of pressure release. And that is the heart of what I call a pressure matrix. And the ultimate goal was to create something that anybody could use in any area of their life. Uh, it is important uh, that you know that whatever area of life you choose to use the pressure matrix in, that you have a working knowledge of that subject. But it all started with dogs, so that's where we will start. Now, I am going to give it to you, the, the basic structural design of the pressure matrix. I'm going to give it away, but until you can actually see it in action, see it unfold in front of you, the way it is meant to be, you will have little success using it. You need to see it. You need to, to learn how it actually works. You need to feel it in order to interpret and use pressure properly. Obviously, I'm, I'm looking uh, at different ways for me to finally monetize the pressure matrix, and I'm working on making some digital education options available, but I don't know how long that's going to take, though. So for now, the only immediate learning option is to attend the School of Dog Psychology's 21-day program for trainers so that I can guide you through the ins and outs of how pressure works. Not only that, I get to teach trainers dog psychology again, you know? I'm only taking 10 students for the program in January, so if, if you are interested in attending, you'll need to go through the application process. But don't, don't let the 10 student limit worry you because I won't be doing any Skype interviews for a few months. And, and if you aren't chosen for January's course, that doesn't mean you, you won't be able to attend a future program. So make sure you apply. You can find the application on my website at www www.schoolofdogpsychology.com That's www.schoolofdogpsychology.com Yeah, I can't, I can't describe how excited I am about this program because it will be my very first opportunity to teach people the whole thing, you know? And the program is being held in the Upland Animal Shelter in California, so we will be able to work with the raw behaviors that have, uh, have accumulated on each of these dogs for as long as they've been in the shelter. So, real quick, if you don't understand dog psychology, that's fine. This will still make sense to you. Uh, this is just the basic structural design. But if you do understand dog psychology, it will be more clear for you and easier to learn. If you plan to use the pressure matrix with dogs, it is important that you understand them first. Anywho... If you Google matrix, there are several versions, but they're all similar and basically saying the same thing. And that is that a matrix is an environment or context or set of conditions that provides a system in which something originates, takes form, develops, or changes. Hmm. The archaic word for matrix is the womb. You see, it's where everything begins. And for me, pressure is inside that womb. Everything revolves around pressure. 
I believe that pressure comes before anything and that behavior is a reaction to pressure. I believe that pressure is a common ground of understanding between all species. Now, the pressure matrix is your map and compass. It is designed to be a simple and predictable formula that can be used to analyze behavior and communication at its root, at its root. In order to read the patterns that suggest, one, how things have happened in past moments, two, how things are happening in this moment, three, how things will likely happen in the next moment, and four, how to strategically design and influence behavior or desired outcome for future moments. Hmm, interesting, right? Most of the time, people only attempt their communications at the dog with inadequately conditioned commands or, or through projected human emotions, unrealistically expecting the dog to understand without actually listening to it, right? Again, pressure is a common ground of understanding between all species. So it makes sense that we can listen to and communicate through pressure with a dog rather than at the dog. Hey, do you guys remember that movie, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, where the Nazis were looking for the Ark of the Covenant? They, they needed that uh, big medallion piece that Indy's old girlfriend had in order to pinpoint the exact location of the Ark or where it was buried. Well, the bad guy didn't end up with the medallion piece, but he did end up with a scar on his hand that had the information, right? It was burned into his hand from that medallion during a fire, remember? Well, it wasn't a complete copy, so the information was incomplete, and so the Nazis ended up looking for the Ark in the wrong place. But Indiana Jones had the medallion and was able to use it to find the exact location of the Ark. Now, of course, the Nazis ended up stealing the Ark back from Indy, but, you know, whatever. Now, remember when I said that the pressure and release that's out there today is incomplete? That it hasn't evolved past what I taught my students 13, 14 years ago? Well, this is one of the reasons why. People are misinterpreting pressure in general, but more importantly, they aren't even in interpreting it at all, the pressures that are coming from the dog, that information that the dog is providing us through the same pressures that we can provide. So information is missing and communication continues to be like what Mr. Shaw said, an illusion that has taken place. The information that is out there right now is incomplete. But if the pressure matrix is allowed to breathe, you know, flex its fucking muscles like Arnold Schwarzenegger and grow, it will continue to evolve well beyond what I've created, you see. Now, I just mentioned the four points of use that the pressure pattern suggests. And these are levels of understanding, and each one needs to be learned before you can use them to clearly see or, or read pressure properly. And of course, you will, you will also still need to learn how to apply them, but... Let's take a closer look at them. The first one, number one, the formula's pattern suggests how things have happened in past moments, okay? So, if pressure uh, is interpreted correctly, we can dissect an, an event and look at its core, you see, how that moment unfolded, right? It takes a little bit of practice, but you can get pretty good at it and pretty quickly and develop the ability to read things that have happened in order to have a better understanding uh, as to why they happened. And then there's two. The pattern suggests what is happening in the current moment. So if you can read what has happened in past moments, then with enough practice, you can also develop the ability to read what the pattern suggests is currently happening 
in order to, you know, uh, maneuver around possible obstacles. So it becomes obvious that in, in number three, the formula's pattern suggests what is likely about to happen in the next moment. Again, this is a skill and, and at this level requires a great deal more practice seeing pressure in action in order to read it correctly, uh, what could happen next. Practice becomes permanent, you know, so your permanent ability to read pressure correctly is, is and will be dependent not just on how often you practice, but how well you practice. Again, this is a skill that must be learned and developed, so if it is possible to dissect a moment into its pressure parts to read how things unfolded, and it absolutely is possible, and that with practice, this will lead to an ability to read pressure parts in the current moment, then it is completely logical that we can read what is possible in the very next moment. Now, this is where it gets exciting because finally, uh, the point of use in number four, the formula's patterns suggest how to strategically design and influence behavior or desired outcomes of future moments. Can you see what that means? Seriously, can you see the potential is what it is? Since the pressure matrix is a map and compass and defines pressure parts it, uh, and, and how pressure and release works to show us where we have been, uh, where we currently are, where we are going, then it is 100% possible that we can use it to design where we want to be. Now that's navigation 101, you see. So we can solve problems with it, like creating new and, and healthy associations or habits for our dogs. Check this out. So if we are watching a dog right now in a panic, whale-eyed, heavy panting, tongue is fat and spatulated, so much drool you could swim in it, pacing, or even frozen in a standing fetal position. And it doesn't really matter what context you put the dog in, a car, a crate, alone at home, tied up to a tree, locked in the bathroom on the 4th of July, wherever you can picture it right now. Can you see it? Can you see it in your mind? Now earlier I laid out the skeleton of how I believe an association is created through an experience with emotions involved and how a current situation can set in motion a reaction perceived through that old experience, an association side effect, remember? So this panicked dog we're watching right now, make sure you see it clearly in your mind, okay? Do you think we are watching a side effect reaction from an old association, an old experience? Or are we watching a reaction that is perceived from an old experience reinforcing that old experience and its association to it? Or are we watching a first-time reaction that will most likely create an association from this experience? Hmm? Which one do you think? Well, it doesn't really matter. You know why? Because each one of those are in the equation of how an association is created. So it doesn't matter where you start. We know the pattern. It's a recipe. We know this. We can see the pattern. So if the pressure matrix allows us to dissect an event into individual behavioral reactions and then down to their individual pressure parts to determine why the reaction occurred, then it makes sense that the pressure matrix will allow us to do the same in real time. And if we are armed with this power, we can deduce the possibilities of the next reaction. If the pressure matrix can show us the patterns that suggest a reaction, then evolution dictates that we can create a reaction. 
And if we understand that an association is created by an experience that triggers an emotional reaction that then dictates repeated future reactions, then again, evolution dictates that we can create a new association. And if we can create associations, then we can create outcomes. And if we can have the power to create an outcome, we can certainly choose to design a positive one. <clears throat> hey guys, sorry about this, but I think I'm gonna cut in right here and call this part one. I just think that time-wise, I should stop right now. Uh, I know that we didn't get into the meat and potatoes of the pressure matrix structure, but I'll post part two in a week or two or so, and, and uh, we'll pick up right where we left off, I promise. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll come back for part two. Let me know what you think. Let me know how you feel. And send your email to askbeyondthedog at gmail.com. Again, that's askbeyondthedog at gmail.com. And take care of yourself, and I'll talk at you soon. Bye.